Hey everyone, it's Janessa. And this is Kathy. And you're listening to The Pathological Podcast. I almost said The Sisters Nerdy Podcast, so. (laughs) When you have two podcasts, it gets confusing real quick. (laughs) So if you haven't listened to our other podcasts, make sure you hop on over there because there's some cool content that comes out weekly and some new things that we're doing and it's fun and lighthearted and all of that. So that's The Sisters Nerdy Podcast. Everywhere podcasts are available. But you are listening to the Pathological Podcast, and we've actually kind of taken a break for a few weeks uh, just to kind of help us get caught up on some stuff. It's very, we've been very busy. And so now we have some new stories. We're recording a bunch of new content, so you guys will have some fun things to look forward to. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I was waiting for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but so in two days from when this episode releases, it will be Valentine's Day, the holiday of love. So we thought... What better than to share with you some awful, tragic crimes that have happened on Valentine's Day? A crime of passion. Crimes of passion. Mostly just shitty people is really what, is really what it is. But we have... Passionate like, people. Cash, that's true. Shitty, passionate people. <laughs> so, yeah, we have a couple uh, just short cases to kind of go over and get you guys in that lovey-dovey mood. Yeah. Yeah. So I will start with the Columbine subway shooter. On February 14th, 2000, Columbine High School students and sweethearts Nicholas Kunzelman, who was 15, and Stephanie Hart, who was 16, were inside the subway where Nicholas was working. Stephanie was waiting for her boyfriend's shift to end. Family members said the two were a happy, sweet young couple, which is why they have a hard time understanding who would shoot and kill them in cold blood. So on the night Stephanie went to the subway to wait for Nick, another employee happened to drive past the restaurant after midnight and noticed that the shop lights were still on. The employee decided to go and make sure everything was okay, which I got to say, if I drove past my work at the time, like any of the places I worked and I saw the lights were on, I would not even give it a second look. I'd be like, meh, at all. <laughs> so when they went inside, the doors were open, lights are still on. And that's when they found Stephanie and Nick shot to death behind the counter. Over two decades later, their murders still remain unsolved. Few credible leads surfaced in the case, and investigators initially released descriptions of a a possible suspect, a white male who is between 16 and 20 years old, about 5'7", and with blonde hair. And those details resulted in tips from across the country and several confessions after the murders gained national attention. But the tips fizzled out and the confessions were found to be false. When suspicions arose that a drug ring was operating out of the subway shop, investigators conducted interviews in more than 50 drug cases, but no new evidence turned up. They still are asking that if anyone has any information about the murders, they're asked to contact the Metro Denver Crime Stoppers. But yeah, the parents actually believe that it was drug related because of the evidence that police found that I almost said drug artists. (laughs) (laughs) like drug dealers. Why couldn't I remember the word dealers? (laughs) So uh, evidence did show that there was like drug dealers and a drug ring happening and they would use that subway as like a meetup spot. And so they think that the kids just happened to be there um, at the wrong time. And this, one of the saddest things about the story is the mom of Stephanie didn't realize that her daughter hadn't come home from the night before because she snuck out after everybody went to bed 
And she said she was watching the news and saw that two people had been found dead at the subway and she noticed her daughter's car in the parking lot. And that's when she's kind of was putting the pieces together. Isn't that so sad? Yeah. Next story is about a wife who hires a hitman whose name is Mr. Results to kill her husband. So on Valentine's Day in 2010, Richard Schoek, 46, arrived at the park expecting to meet his wife, Stacy, for a romantic rendezvous through the park. Instead, he came face to face with the man Stacy had hired to murder him. With Stacy, who was 38 and the sole beneficiary of her husband's life insurance policy, police always had her at the top of their list of suspects, but it took months for investigators to gather enough evidence for an arrest. With her work colleague, Lenitra Ross, acting as a go-between, Stacy hired Reginald Coleman to shoot and kill Richard. Reginald, who was known as, quote, Mr. Results, ended up pocketing $14,000 for pulling the trigger, which Stacy had no problem paying since she was anticipating more than half a million dollars to come to her into her life as a result. In court, Stacy first claimed she had Richard killed because he molested her 14-year-old son. She said, quote, I'm going to be the judge, the jury, and the executioner, and that's what I did. However, her son denied any abuse at the hands of the man who had adopted him and his two siblings and loved them as his own. Stacy then admitted she was having an affair and had plotted her husband's murder. To avoid the death penalty, Stacy testified against Lenitra and Reginald, and all three were handed life sentences. As a side note, Reginald's job... He was not known for his killings and for being a hitman. He was a personal trainer and his nickname was Mr. Results for that. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. So dumb. So dumb. Like, can you imagine you think you're, I mean, if you're shitty enough to hire a hitman and you don't like actually look them up, <laughs> like, like that's just stupid in general. But then to find out that, He's a personal trainer and his nickname is Mr. Results. And to use that as a reason to hire him to kill your husband, it's just. Also, if I was that guy and like, I wonder if he knew she was going to get a $700,000 payout. Because if that's the case, I would have charged a lot more than $14,000. Right? (laughs) That's like, especially knowing that there's a huge possibility you will go to jail because you've never done this before. (laughs) Yeah. And then he gets a life sentence anyways. So yeah, exactly. What was that money good for? Exactly. <laughs> okay, so this is Oscar Pistorius kills his girlfriend. So Oscar Pistorius made his international debut at the 2004 Summer Paralympic Games. While Pistorius is classified as a T43 or double below the knee amputee, he competed in the T4 division, which is designed for a single below knee amputees. But it didn't matter. Oscar became a worldwide sensation in 2012 when he qualified for the Summer Olympics in both the 400-meter race and the 4x400-meter race for South Africa. In the 400, Pistorius finished second in his qualifying heat and then placed eighth in the second semifinal. When he didn't win any medals, he made history becoming the first amputee runner to compete at the Olympics. Then on Valentine's Day in 2013, Then on Valentine's Day 2013, six months after carrying the South African flag in the closing ceremony, Oscar shot and killed his girlfriend, model Reva Steenkamp, in what he described as an intruder incident. It was early morning on the 14th when Pistorius woke at his home to find that his girlfriend was no longer in bed with him. She was instead in the couple's ensuite bathroom. 
The sprinter heard noises coming from the bathroom and for whatever, whatever reason, didn't assume it was Reva. Instead, he assumed an intruder was in there and he shot through the door four times, killing Reva. Pistorius went to trial in March 2014, but the trial was delayed when his defense team claimed he had generalized anxiety disorder and might not be criminally responsible for the shooting. The trial resumed in July, and a couple of months later, Pistorius was found guilty of culpable homicide and one firearm-related charge of reckless endangerment. He received a prison sentence with a maximum of five years for culpable homicide and concurrent three-year suspended prison sentence for the reckless endangerment and conviction. A month after the conviction, prosecutors appealed the verdict and described the sentence as shockingly light, inappropriate, and would not have been imposed by any reasonable court. In November 2015, the Supreme Court of Appeal agreed and overturned the lower court's decision of culpable homicide and instead found him guilty of murder and the death of his girlfriend. So in July 2016, the same judge who initially sentenced Pistorius to the five years amended his sentence, adding an extra year. That decision also did not sit well with the prosecutors, who said they would take their appeal back to the Supreme Court of Appeal and request a lengthier sentence. After another few months of hearings, the higher court made a ruling in November 2017 and increased Pistorius' jail sentence to 15 years minus time served. He will not be available for parole until 2023. Wow. Which is in two months or two years. Two years, yeah. I remember when this happened like two months. Oh God, Kathy. (laughs) Yeah, I remember when this happened. It was like it took like the sports world by storm because like he just straight up shot her. I don't understand how he thought it was an intruder. And even if he did, why wouldn't he shout out to make sure it wasn't his girlfriend? Right. I don't know. Yeah, it makes it seem like it was maybe they were intentional. Exactly. Maybe they were in an argument or something and he just shot through. This next one is the infamous St. Valentine's Day Massacre. So next up, we have the infamous St. Valentine's Day Massacre. So at 10.30 a.m. on Valentine's Day in 1929, seven men were murdered at the garage at 2122 North Clark Street in Chicago's north side. They were shot by four men using weapons that included two machine guns. Two of the shooters were dressed as uniformed policemen, while the other two wore suits, ties, overcoats, and hats. Witnesses saw the fake police leading the other men at gunpoint out of the garage after the shooting. The victims included five members of George Moran's Northside gang. Moran's second-in-command and brother-in-law were killed along with the gang's bookkeeper and business managers. Two gang enforcers were also murdered. Real Chicago police officers arrived at the scene to find that the victim, Frank Gusenberg, was still alive. He was taken to a hospital where doctors stabilized him for a short time and police tried to question him. He had sustained 14 bullet wounds, but when the police asked who did it, he replied, quote, no one shot me. He died three hours later. Al Capone was widely assumed to have been responsible for ordering the murders in an attempt to eliminate Moran. Moran was the last survivor of the Northside gunman. He was also supposed to be with the other men that morning, but he ended up leaving, leaving his Parkway Hotel apartment late. And I didn't write this part down, uh, but I actually read like what had happened. So He left a few minutes late, and as he was walking towards where the other men were going, he saw them get, or he saw a parked police car, which was the fake police car, and he, like, kind of went inside a coffee shop, and then he actually saw a couple other members of different gangs and kind of warned them, like, hey, there's police over there, and 
they all like went other directions. It was really weird. (laughs) Oh, dang. Yeah. Like he just, that he happened to see it. So within days, Capone received a summons to testify before a Chicago grand jury on charges of federal prohibition violations, but he claimed to be too unwell to attend. It was common knowledge that Moran was hijacking Capone's uh, Detroit-based liquor shipments. On February 22nd, police were called to the scene of a garage fire on Wood Street, where they found a 1927 Cadillac sedan disassembled and partially burned. They determined that the killers had used the car. Police then announced that that they suspected Capone gunman John Scalise and Albert Anselmi, as well as Jack McGurn and Frank Rio, a Capone bodyguard. Capone murdered John Scalise, Anselmi, and Joseph Giunta on, on May, sorry, in May 1929 after he learned about their plan to kill him. Police dropped charges against Jack McGurn because of lack of evidence, and no one was officially charged in the massacre. That's nuts. What a time of gangsters and right during the Great Depression, too. Yeah, seriously. And I was like, as if there wasn't enough issues to deal with. <laughs> For real. And then these gangsters are like, okay, we're going to also, you know, put our gang shit into the streets. <laughs> gang shit. <laughs> so this is the Valentine's dance. Jesse McBain, 19, was a popular athletic and smart North Carolina State University student. He was voted most likely to succeed. His fiance and high school sweetheart, 20-year-old Patricia Mann, was a nursing student. The young couple with promising futures were abducted, tortured, and murdered February 11th, 1971, after attending a Valentine's dance together. Authorities said McBain accompanied Mann to the Valentine's Day dance at Watts Hospital in Durham. From there, police said they headed to what was then a secluded area on the wayside place for some alone time. Friends of Patricia in her nursing school knew something was wrong when she didn't return before the 1 a.m. curfew for her dorm. She had never broken curfew before and was described as a responsible young woman who took her nursing schooling very seriously and went by the rules. And Jesse, by all accounts, was a good guy who wouldn't pressure Patricia to do anything she didn't want to, including skipping curfew. They called local hospitals, filed a report with the Durham County Police Department, and then not being able to sit on their hands waiting any longer, Patricia's friends, colleagues, and roommates decided to go out and physically look for the couple. They visited all the spots they thought Patricia could be, including the secluded area on the wayside place. There, they would find Jesse's parked car in the empty cul-de-sac. The couple's coats were in the back. Nothing was in a disarray. There was no signs of a struggle. The car was locked, and later newspaper reports would say that the car was wiped of all fingerprints. But Jesse and Patricia were nowhere to be found. Investigators started by working off of the idea that Jesse and Patricia had eloped or skipped town swept up in the glow of a romantic Valentine's Day. But when those theories didn't pan out, it became clear to investigators that something just wasn't right with the case. For nearly two weeks, police and search parties made up of concerned locals worked the nearby areas. Investigators followed up every lead but constantly came up empty. The 12 days after the couple went missing, a surveyor working in the heavily wooded area along one of the lane dirt road sees what he thinks is a piece of mannequin sticking out of a pile of leaves. When the man gets closer, he realizes it is actually a human body. Police are immediately called, and by the end of the day, Jesse McBain and Patricia Mann are officially identified. 
Investigations found that the couple had been tied to a tree, backs to the bark, and their hands tied with a thick rope. There was rope around their heads and necks, and though they'd been secured to the tree, their bodies had slumped forward and down, leaving side by side and partially covered by leaves. Jesse was still wearing his class ring and watch, so police determined this wasn't a robbery. The medical examiner found no evidence of sexual assault, but Patricia had internal injuries from being punched, kicked, or stopped. There are multiple strangulation marks around their necks, suggesting that the rope had been tightened and loosened over and over again. Investigators determined the murder of this young couple had been about torture. Ugh, that's awful. An extensive investigation began between multiple agencies, including the Orange County Sheriff's Department, the Durham Police Department, and the FBI. A detective working on the case, Tim Horn, said that there was a lack of collaboration between all different law enforcement agencies at the time. Not a lot of information was being shared by the various agencies, so there was some missed opportunities. Through the chaos, however, there emerged a couple of decent suspects. Some were cleared by polygraph tests, others failed. One in particular was a doctor at Watts Hospital who worked with Patricia. He repeatedly refused to cooperate with law enforcement, putting himself in increasingly suspicious light. In Horn's opinion, the doctor was the focus in 1971 and he is still the focus of today. No one ever really zeroed on or zeroed in on any suspects. He said, this case went cold and the murders of Jesse McBain and Patricia Mann remains an open and active investigation. Wow. That's so sad. Well, like the fact that the doctor isn't even cooperating with law enforcement pretty much is like, oh, he did it. Like, yeah. So like arrest him. People got arrested for less. Yeah, for real. Honestly, for real. I feel like if you are somebody who doesn't cooperate at all, like all you're doing is pointing like making yourself look guilty or even just be like oh like I need a lawyer present for this you could at least like done that and not be like no yeah I won't cooperate yeah no something something's wrong there I wonder if he okay our last bloody valentine story is called the missionaries sorry I fucked it up it's called the missionary murders his wife so on valentine's day in 2013 Denise Luthold, wife of missionary Nathan Luthold and mother of three young children, was found shot to death in Peoria, Illinois. She was only 39. Days before her murder, Nathan called the police and told them he'd seen a strange car in the neighborhood. One night, he said, they pulled into our driveway without the headlights on. Although Nathan said his world was shattered by Denise's death, prosecutors would argue that Nathan killed Denise in order to be with his alleged mistress, 21-year-old Ana Dubalady, a Lithuanian student that the family had sponsored. Nathan met Aina in Lithuania when she was only six years old and brought her to the U.S. so she could go to school. Prosecutors argued that Nathan staged the murder to appear like a burglary gone bad. Burglary? Burglary. Gone bad. A computer camera and two guns, including the one used to shoot Denise execution style, were missing. In September 2014, Nathan was found guilty of his wife's murder and sentenced to 80 years in prison. The judge who sentenced Nathan said the emails expressing glee about Aina serving as a surrogate mother for his children were, quote, about as over-the-top gut-wrenching as it gets. The judge also said it was shameful to kill his wife in her parents' home, 
and called him a thief for taking Denise away from her three children and her family. To this day, Nathan and Aina deny having any sort of romantic relationship. I got to say, I don't understand like how there are so many men who think they're going to get away with killing their wife. I mean, I, I know occasionally it does happen where there's not enough evidence or whatever, but a lot of these people just think that they're too smart for law enforcement or what. But I mean, he literally sent emails expressing glee, quote unquote glee, that Aina would be the new mother of his children. Like, how stupid can you fucking be? <laughs> right. Ugh. All right. Well, we hope that you guys have a nice Valentine's Day. A great one. A great one. Hopefully you don't murder anyone and hopefully no one murders you. And then it's a successful day, I say. I mean, I guess so. <laughs> So that will do it. We will catch you guys on the next episode. Make sure to follow us on our social media pages, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and I think soon to be a YouTube page. Um, All of those are Pathological Podcast. Catch you on the next one. Bye.